today in our study of God's precious word, we are going to begin to look at the longest discourse of Jesus recorded in Mark's gospel. It is found in chapter 13, so please turn there with me if you are not already there. Mark chapter 13, and please follow along as I read verses 3 through 20, though we really won't be going through those this morning. We're going to do an overview of the entire chapter because of its importance and how confusing it can be. So I want to read quite a bit of it for us, beginning in verse 3 down through verse 20, so that we know what the topic is, what the subject is, and then we'll do our overview, and Lord willing, in the weeks to come, we'll go through it verse by verse. But beginning in verse 3, now as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Jesus answered them, and Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves for they will deliver you up to councils and you will be beaten in the synagogues and you will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, Do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak, but whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated by all men for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his garment. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those with nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter, for in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days." This is one of the most controversial sections in all of Mark's gospel. What I mean is, if you read the various commentators and commentaries and Bible teachers who have written on this chapter, the interpretations of Mark chapter 13 are all over the board. A lot of times, the disagreements in interpretation center on the issue of eschatology. Eschatology is the technical term 
for a person's view of the end times or a view, uh, your view of the last days. The term eschatology is made up from two words, two Greek words, eschatos, which means last or final, and logos, which means word or study of. So eschatology is a word about the last days or a study of the last days or theology of the last days. This chapter is a key passage for that topic of theology. However, there are some who say that this chapter doesn't have any bearing on eschatology whatsoever because they say that the events of this chapter were all fulfilled in A.D. 70 when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. Others say that this discourse by Jesus goes well beyond A.D. 70 and it addresses events that will take place in the last days. Because there are these differences of opinion, these different schools of thought, and because this can be a difficult chapter to understand, I think it is good to do an overview message before we get into the details of all the verses. So, as the saying goes, you don't miss the forest for the trees. So that's what we're going to do in this message. The Olivet Discourse which is the technical title for this section, begins in verse 5 and goes all the way to the end of the chapter. It's a long chapter, a lot of material. Not as much, by the way, as you find in Matthew's Gospel, because in Matthew's record of the Olivet Discourse, it actually spans two chapters, Matthew 24 and 25. So this discourse is actually one unit That means it is important that we understand all the components, all the stories, all the points made by Jesus as being connected together. Many, many Christians do not do that. They pull statements from this discourse out of their context, and they end up teaching things that Jesus was not intending to teach. Maybe the most famous or common illustration of this is what people do with the sheep and goat judgment, which is not recorded in Mark's account of the Olivet Discourse, but it is in Matthew's account. And that sheep and goat judgment is pulled out of its context regularly and used to teach all sorts of things that Jesus did not intend to teach in this particular context. So I'll say it again for emphasis. The Olivet Discourse, which is the technical title for this message by Jesus, begins in verse 5 and goes all the way to the end of the chapter. It is a unit. Jesus gave this discourse to answer a question from the disciples that was prompted by what Jesus had said regarding the desolation and destruction of the temple. In verse 38 of Matthew chapter 23, Jesus had told the religious leaders of his day that the temple was no longer God's house. It was their house. God had abandoned it. God had left it to them. It was their house because God moved out. The glory departed and the temple was left desolate. Matthew 23, 38 says, See or behold your house, your house, not God's house, your house is left to you desolate. When Jesus departed from the temple in verse 1 of chapter 13, The glory of God departed from the temple, and it was left desolate. It sat desolate for almost 40 years, 
even though the Jewish people were oblivious to the fact that God was no longer there. He wasn't there. He was gone. He moved out. They continued to go to the temple, the Jewish people did, and offer sacrifices, but it was all a bunch of meaningless liturgy. God was gone. He moved out. After 40 years of these continual sacrifices, which was an affront to the Lord's perfect and final sacrifice on the cross, God's patience had reached its end. Not only would the temple be left desolate, it would be destroyed. Jesus predicted that in verses 1 and 2 of this chapter. Verse 1 of of Mark 13, Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what manner of buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Well, this made no sense to the disciples whatsoever. They knew that the nation of Israel was God's chosen nation. They knew that Jerusalem was God's chosen city. They knew the temple was God's house. They had become convinced that Jesus was God's Messiah, the King of Israel. So in their minds, they figured that Jesus would establish the kingdom promised for Israel throughout Hebrew Scripture. They figured that he would exalt Jerusalem so that the temple would become the worship center for the entire world. But now Jesus was talking about the desolation and destruction of the temple? This didn't make any sense. What do you mean, Jesus? How could God's house, which is going to be the center of worship for the world, how could this be desolate? How could it be destroyed? So they asked Jesus a question in verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately. So they left the temple complex, crossed the Kidron Valley, and they're sitting somewhere on the Mount of Olives. It appears that as they made that short trek from the temple across the Kidron over to the Mount of Olives, that The disciples had been thinking about what Jesus had predicted regarding the destruction of the temple. They had been chewing on this and and contemplating it. They could not believe what they had heard. So they decided to ask Jesus about it. Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked on behalf of all of them. Verse 4, tell us, tell us, Lord, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? According to Matthew's account, they also asked another question that Mark didn't choose to record. They said, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? That question, by the way, is bound up in the second question here in verse 4, but it's not easy to catch it in our English translations. The completion of the age, that phrase, the completion of the age in Matthew's account, now stay with me here, the completion of the age in Matthew's account is the noun form of the verb here in Mark rendered to be accomplished or to be fulfilled. So even here in Mark's account, the disciples are asking about the coming of Jesus and the end of the age. But it's not as clear as it is in Matthew's account, at least not as clear in our English translations. So the disciples want to know about the coming of Jesus 
and the end of the age. Remember now, the disciples didn't know about a second coming of Jesus. We use that term a lot because we know all about it from Scripture. They didn't know about a second coming. They still didn't understand that Jesus was going to die and go away. They had not grasped that as of yet. So when they asked this question, they weren't asking about his second coming. They didn't even know there was a second coming. They were simply asking Jesus when he was going to come forward as the Messiah. They were convinced he was the Messiah. So he is, they're, they're asking, when are you going to come forward as the Messiah, the King of Israel, and end this present age by bringing in the kingdom age? When are you going to do that, Lord? When they heard Jesus talking about the desolation and destruction of the temple, they wondered how that would fit in with the kingdom program. They knew that once Jesus came forward in all of his power and glory to bring in the kingdom, they knew that would end the present age. So that's what they're asking here. They actually asked two questions, and they probably assumed that they were basically the same question. First they asked, when will these things be? Then they asked, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? What they didn't realize was that the two questions were separate issues because the destruction of the temple would take place in A.D. 70, but the end of the age would not come at that point. It would be much later. They probably assumed that the two were connected in some way and somehow would be at the same time. In fact, they probably thought the two events were going to happen in any moment. How do we know that's what they were thinking? Well, we don't have to guess because Luke 19.11 tells us this. It tells us that because Jesus was in Jerusalem, now remember, he spent most of his ministry up in Galilee, almost two years up there, 22 months. He occasionally would come to Jerusalem for the feasts, for the festivals, the holidays, and, and, and do ministry there. But most of his ministry was up in Galilee or in Perea. So Luke 19.11 tells us that because Jesus was in Jerusalem at this time, the disciples, now here's a direct quote from Luke 19.11, they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. That's what they're thinking. They're thinking, okay, Jesus has been doing all this ministry for all these years, most of it up in Galilee, some of it in Perea, occasionally visiting Jerusalem, but there's something different about this visit to Jerusalem. They knew that. There's something different about this visit. What they didn't know is what was different was his death was right around the corner. But they knew there was something different about this visit to Jerusalem, and they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Here it is. Now it's time. The kingdom is going to be established. Jesus is going to reign from Jerusalem. The temple will be exalted as the place of worship for all the world. That's what they're thinking. So they're basically asking for clarification from Jesus concerning how all of this would fit together. This discourse here in chapter 13, is in response to their questions. Now, Jesus doesn't give them a lot of specifics concerning the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70, at least not in Mark's account. He gives more in Matthew's and a lot more in Luke's account. But he doesn't give them a lot of specifics concerning the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. But here in Mark's account, he does give them a lot of information about their second question, his coming and the end of the age. Of course, the coming that he refers to in this text is his second coming. But again, I want to say 
That was beyond the grasp of the disciples at this point. They would understand later, after the resurrection, after his ascension from the Mount of Olives, as they reflected back on what he said to them here on this occasion. So, Jesus begins to tell them about the events leading up to his coming and the end of the age. In verses 5 through 8, he describes what we know as the first half of the future seven-year tribulation period. Then he describes the second half of the future seven-year tribulation period. Now here's a valid question. How do we know that Jesus is describing the future seven-year tribulation period in these verses? How do we know that? Valid question. Three reasons. Number one, we know Jesus is describing the future tribulation period because he says in verse 8, that these are the beginning of sorrows or the beginning of birth pangs. Verse 8, For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. These are the, the beginnings of birth pangs. In other words, when these things begin to happen with more frequency and more intensity, that is an indication that something big is about to happen. When a woman begins to experience frequent and intense labor pains, that is a sign that the baby is coming. When this world begins to experience the events in verses 5 through 8 with frequency and intensity, that is a sign that Jesus is coming. A second reason why we know that Jesus is describing the future tribulation period is because in verse 14, he makes mention of the abomination of desolation. Look at verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not. Now notice this little parenthesis. Let the reader understand. Don't miss that. Let the reader understand. What that tells us is that the culmination or the, the, uh, the fulfillment of what Jesus is teaching here would not take place necessarily in the same age as the hearers of this message, but people who would later read this message. Let the reader understand. So, but when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The phrase, the abomination of desolation, comes out of the book of Daniel. It was used to refer to at least one event in the past, maybe more. But here Jesus uses the phrase to describe a future event. This fits with what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.4 regarding the future man of sin or Antichrist who will set himself up in the temple to demand worship as God. 2 Thessalonians 2.4 says he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. By the way, that never happened in connection with A.D. 70. That never happened. This was not fulfilled in A.D. 70. The Romans destroyed the temple, but the Roman emperor, the Roman Caesar, didn't come to Jerusalem and set himself up in the temple, claiming to be God, and demand that the world worship him as the God of the temple. And this is confirmed in Revelation 13, verses 14 and 15, as a future event. We know from Daniel 9, 27, that this future event 
known as the abomination of desolation, will take place at the midpoint of the final seven-year period of Daniel 9's prophecy, the midpoint of what we call the seven-year tribulation. Jesus doesn't mention that information here because it was already foretold in Daniel. It didn't need to be stated again. In fact, Jesus doesn't even mention here in Mark 13 that this future tribulation that he describes is a seven-year period because that was already revealed in Daniel 9. But the fact that Jesus refers to a future abomination of desolation is an indication he is talking about a future, he is describing a future seven-year tribulation period. And then thirdly, the strongest reason, a third reason why we know that Jesus is describing the future seven-year tribulation period is because in verse 24, he specifically calls it that. Verse 24, But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars of heaven will fall, the powers in heaven will be shaken, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Jesus says that immediately after this tribulation period, he will come from heaven and they, all the world, will see him coming in power and great glory. Now that had to be confusing to the disciples when they heard it because they didn't know that Jesus was going back to heaven. But after the ascension, this would all make a lot more sense to them. So for those three reasons... We know that this discourse by Jesus covers the future tribulation period. There is another important feature of this discourse that we need to keep in mind, and that is the fact that it focuses on the Jewish people. It focuses on the Jewish people. Beloved, a failure to recognize this will result in a lot of confusion in your understanding of this passage. This message by Jesus focuses on the Jewish people. It's not that Gentiles are excluded as being irrelevant or not being a part of things then, but the focus is clearly the Jewish people. We've already seen that. It was prompted by questions that the disciples asked when Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple. That's back in verses 1 and 2. Furthermore, we just just saw in verse 14 that Jesus says a key event in this time period will be the abomination of desolation in the temple. That is a Jewish issue. We don't live in Israel. We don't live in Jerusalem. But these words are specifically addressed to Jewish people living in that area. That's why verse 14 says, But when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are, what, in Missouri flee to the mountains? No, Judea. Let those who are in Judea We don't live in Judea, but the people in focus for this message will be living in Judea when these events occur. That would be Jewish people. This is where so many Christians get confused when they read the Olivet Discourse. They read these words as if Jesus were speaking to us, the church, but the church is not the focus of this discourse. That is further reinforced in Matthew 24, 20, when Jesus refers to the travel restrictions on the Sabbath day. Matthew 24, 20 says, and that's that's the heart of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew's account. Matthew 24, 20 says, And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. 
Now, what difference would it make for us if we had to flee persecution on Saturday? Would that make any difference in your life? None whatsoever. That wouldn't make any difference whatsoever. In fact, that might make things even easier for us. Because those who work outside of the home uh, during the week, you know, if it were a Saturday, maybe you're home and you could just go. Hop in your car and go. So the comment about the Sabbath from Matthew's Gospel is further confirmation that the focus of this message by Jesus is the Jewish people. As I said a moment ago, this is where so many Christians get confused when they read the Olivet Discourse. They assume Jesus is addressing Christians or the church when he speaks of these things. Therefore, they draw the conclusion, one of the conclusions they draw, is that the church is going through the tribulation period. Well, the church may go through the seven-year tribulation period. It may, though I don't believe the evidence points to that, but it's possible. But here's the point. If you believe that, you can't really base it on this passage. This passage is focused on the Jewish people, as we see by the comments about the temple, comments about Judea, comments about the Sabbath. It is clear that the nation of Israel is going through the tribulation period. In fact, they're the focus of it. They're the central issue in it. As God uses that period to bring them to repentance and bring them to acknowledge their Messiah. Daniel 9 makes that clear. Jeremiah 30, verse 7 makes that clear. Zechariah 13, 9 makes that clear. The book of Revelation makes that clear, as well as many other passages. In fact, Jeremiah 30, verse 7 calls this time period the day of Jacob's trouble. What's another name for Jacob? Israel. It's a day of Israel's trouble. The people of Israel are going through the tribulation period. But you can't draw any conclusions about the church from this passage because the focus of this message by Jesus is the Jewish people. So, the message was prompted by his predictions regarding the temple. It covers the seven-year tribulation period. It focuses on the Jewish people. And the fourth point there on your outline, it culminates in the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. Notice verse 24 again. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. After Jesus mentions his second coming here in these verses, he elaborates on it by giving a couple of parables or illustrations in the following verses. In verses 28 and 29, he gives the parable of the fig tree. In verses 34 through 36, he drives home the point by telling the story of a man who, who went to a far country and what his servants did in his absence. Those stories relate to his second coming, which is the culmination of this Olivet Discourse. So this message was prompted by his predictions regarding the temple. It covers the seven-year tribulation period. It focuses on the Jewish people. It culminates in the second coming of Jesus to the earth. This is another reminder to us that we need to be careful about trying to draw conclusions from this passage that it is not intending to teach. For example, because there is no mention in this passage of a pre-tribulation rapture or mid-tribulation rapture or pre-wrath rapture, some have assumed that Jesus is teaching a post-tribulation rapture. 
However, that is an assumption that cannot be proven from this text. It's not even the point of this text. This message by Jesus does not address the timing of the great gathering together of the church in the air unto Jesus. It doesn't even talk about that. 1 Thessalonians 4 addresses that issue. 2 Thessalonians 2 addresses that issue. Revelation 3.10 addresses that issue. John 14 addresses that issue. And there are other passages that address the issue. But this passage doesn't. Unless you assume that the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air and the second coming of Jesus to the earth are the same events. However, assuming that the two events are identical poses problems. If you look at the descriptions of those two events recorded in Scripture, you find some significant differences. At the great gathering together unto Jesus, commonly called the rapture, at the rapture, it is clear, clear from 1 Thessalonians 4, we go up and meet Jesus in the air. But at the second coming, Christ returns to the earth. At the rapture, we go to heaven, or Jesus called it in John 14, the Father's house. But at the second coming, we come to the earth. At the rapture, Christ comes for his saints. At the second coming, Christ comes with his saints. The rapture is not preceded by signs. The second coming is preceded by signs. In fact, Jesus says those who miss the signs of his second coming will be held accountable that they missed the obvious. So the point is don't assume that those two events are identical. If you believe they are identical, and many Christians do, if you believe they are identical, you have to be able to prove from Scripture they are identical. You can't just assume that the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air and the second coming of Jesus to the earth are identical. So this passage is talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth not the great gathering together unto Jesus in the air, which is popularly, popularly called the rapture. So this message by Jesus was prompted by his predictions regarding the temple. It covers the future tribulation period. It focuses on the Jewish people. It culminates in the second coming of Jesus to the earth. And our final point this morning, it leads into the millennial kingdom. We know that because in Matthew's account of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus tells about the sheep and goat judgment that it will occur after his second coming, a judgment that separates sheep and goats to determine who will go into the kingdom. That will take place after the tribulation period, after the second coming of Jesus to the earth, but it will be before the beginning of the kingdom that Jesus comes to establish on the earth. And in Matthew 25, as Jesus describes this judgment, he says, all the nations will be gathered before him. The word nations is the same Greek word translated Gentiles. All the Gentiles will be gathered before him. So that judgment will involve everyone who is alive at the end of the tribulation period and alive after the second coming of Jesus to the earth. All people on planet earth will be gathered before Jesus except for the Jewish people. They will not be in that judgment. It is for all the nations, ethne, all the Gentiles, all the non-Jewish people who are alive after the second coming will be gathered before Jesus at what is called the judgment of the sheep and goats. And if you're familiar with that judgment in Matthew 25, they will be judged, this is fascinating, they will be judged 
based on how they treated the Jewish brethren of Jesus during their intense time of persecution throughout the tribulation period. That will be the basis of their judgment. Why will that be the basis? Because, now please hear this, a person's true spiritual condition of salvation or condemnation will be manifested in how that person related to the persecuted Jewish people throughout the tribulation period. Only those on planet earth who truly know and love the Lord Jesus will be willing to come to the aid of the Jewish people during that time because Scripture says right here in Mark 13 and in Matthew 24, the Jewish people will be hated by everyone else. So it's pretty simple at the sheep and goat judgment. If a person is willing to help the Jewish people, you can be confident that such an individual had truly received Jesus as Lord and Savior. Understand, it's not that an individual will earn his or her salvation by ministering to the Jewish people. He or she will simply prove or verify or manifest the genuineness of his or her salvation in that way. Those who end up demonstrating the reality of their salvation in that way will be welcomed into the kingdom. That's what Jesus says, Matthew 25. Come into the kingdom, those of you who are sheep. You did these things to, in doing them to my brethren. You did them to me, Jesus said. Come into the kingdom. Those who prove by their actions that they are goats and not sheep will be excluded from the kingdom. That's what comes out in the sheep and goat judgment. By the way, a little side note, that is not the same judgment that is described at the end of Revelation chapter 20, which is called the great white throne judgment. That is a judgment of all the lost, of all the ages, who are raised after the kingdom to stand before the great white throne. Every unbeliever who has ever lived will be at the great white throne judgment. But the sheep and goat judgment only involves all those who are alive after the second coming of Jesus to the earth. Those who are saved are welcomed into the kingdom as is specifically stated in Matthew 25, 34. Come into the kingdom. Come inherit the kingdom. You see, when Jesus returns to this earth at the end of the tribulation period, he is coming back to establish the kingdom. If he weren't coming back to establish the kingdom, why does he need to come to the earth? Just come into the air and take us all away and let's just go to heaven. He doesn't need to come back to the earth. He doesn't need for his feet to touch the Mount of Olives, as Zechariah says. If he's not coming back to the earth to establish the kingdom, why come back at all? Just take us to heaven. But when Jesus comes, when he returns, he is coming to establish the kingdom. That's what the disciples were expecting in their day. But Jesus explains in this message that the kingdom won't be established until sometime in the future, after the tribulation period, after his second coming to the earth. That's when the kingdom will be established. We wouldn't know from this passage in Mark 13, or from Matthew's account, 24 and 25, or Luke's, we wouldn't know how long this earthly kingdom lasts, but we are told in Revelation 20, that it will last 1,000 years. That is why it is often referred to as the millennial kingdom, since the word millennium means 1,000. Now get this. Six specific times, 
Six specific times the phrase thousand years is used in Revelation chapter 20 to describe the future earthly kingdom. Six times. When God says something that many times, there's no excuse for us not hearing what he has said. If he said it one time, then maybe we might say, well, he's just using that symbolically to say it's a long time. You know, it's an eternal kingdom. But when he says it six times, the future earthly kingdom that was promised throughout Hebrew scripture will last 1,000 years, and that will lead into the eternal heavenly kingdom. However, it's interesting to note that that subject is not addressed by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. Why? Because that wasn't the emphasis of the promises made to the Jewish people throughout Hebrew Scripture. That's why there isn't a lot said about heaven in the Old Testament. Have you ever noticed that? As you've read through the Old Testament? Not a lot about heaven in there. That wasn't the focus of their hope. That's our hope. We want to go to heaven to be with Jesus. That wasn't their hope. Their hope was the glorious earthly kingdom, which will be a time when the earth will be rejuvenated back to its pre-sin days, or at least close to that. The desert will blossom like a rose. The animosity within the animal kingdom will be overturned. Death will be an anomaly or a rarity. There will be dramatic changes on planet earth and throughout the world as Jesus reigns in Jerusalem on the throne of his glory. This was the hope of the Jewish people throughout the Old Testament times. And no wonder it was their hope because their scripture says so much about it. It wasn't an unfounded hope that they had. It was founded in multiple passages throughout Hebrew Scripture. So this was the hope of the Jewish people throughout the Old Testament times. And catch this. This was even the hope of the disciples of Jesus in the Gospels. This was their hope. This was their focus. This is what they were thinking about. Which is why when Jesus said he was going to die, it never got through to them. That, didn't, that couldn't be in their minds. If he's Messiah going to bring in the kingdom, he can't die. That is why Jesus doesn't say anything about the future eternal kingdom in the new heaven and the new earth. He says nothing about that here in the Olivet Discourse. Instead, he only takes the timeline out to the earthly millennial kingdom in this marvelous message known as the Olivet Discourse. It is called that because Jesus spoke these words somewhere on the Mount of Olives. We were told that back in verse 3. It says, now as he, he being Jesus, of course, now as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, many of you have been to Jerusalem, you know from the Mount of Olives, you look right across the Kidron to the Temple Mount, Jesus could see the whole thing in that panorama view as he sat there opposite the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately. It's quite powerful to think about Jesus sitting somewhere on the Mount of Olives overlooking the city of Jerusalem and the majestic temple which dominated the landscape, speaking these words about the future of the Jewish people. He knew they were going to experience a time of horrendous judgment in A.D. 70 when the Romans came sweeping through as the rod of God's judgment. He tells about that in verse 2. But he also knew that the Jewish people will someday experience another horrific time of persecution and judgment during the future seven-year tribulation period. And Jesus says it will be a time of unprecedented trouble. It will be a time of trouble for Israel that they have never experienced. That is shocking when you think about the Holocaust. 
And yet Jesus said that this future period of tribulation will be worse than anything the Jewish people have ever experienced. It will be worse, far worse than what they experienced in A.D. 70. Down in verse 19, Jesus said, For in those days there will be tribulation such as not, has not been from the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. Why will they experience such atrocities? Here's the answer. Because of their refusal to humble themselves and receive their own Messiah. They choose this fate for themselves. They choose the judgment of God. It's the choice that has been made by countless millions of people down through the centuries. Sadly, there's a good chance that some here this morning are in that same category. You are choosing the judgment of God because you are unwilling to humble yourself before the Lord in repentance to receive his forgiveness and salvation. Is that you? If so, you will have no one to blame but yourself if you experience the judgment of God. No one to blame but yourself. Won't you learn a lesson from history past? Won't you learn a lesson from this discourse of Jesus? The coming judgment of God is certain, but you don't have to experience it. Humble yourself before the Lord in repentance to receive his forgiveness and his salvation. Don't choose the judgment of God. Let's bow together in closing this morning. As you bow your head in closing this morning, I ask you to think about that final question. Is this you? What I mean is, are you choosing the judgment of God? Choosing God's judgment by virtue of Rejecting his salvation by refusing to humble yourself before him as a little child. Refusing to place faith in Jesus, simple childlike faith. If you refuse that, you choose the judgment of God. And you will have no one to blame but yourself. I urge you with all that is in me, let go of whatever is holding you back. Humble yourself before the Lord and receive Jesus Christ in simple, childlike faith. Father, as we close our service this morning and close this message, we are thankful that Jesus was willing to answer these questions of the disciples. He was willing to give information about the future, knowing that some would misuse it maybe, knowing that it could be possibly confusing. But he saw the need, saw the importance of laying out what you have planned for the future. So we thank you for that and are excited in the days ahead, Lord willing, to walk our way through this Olivet Discourse to see what Jesus had to say about the future. And as we do, protect us from merely from merely going to this passage for speculation, but rather to go to it to learn what Jesus would want us to learn when he delivered this message and to respond to it the way that he would want us to respond. 
And clearly we see from what he says here that he understood and predicted and promised that judgment would someday come to this earth. It is coming. And yet, as John the Baptist said, flee from the wrath to come. We can flee from the wrath to come by fleeing to your son, the Lord Jesus. Father, I pray for anyone who is with us here this morning who has not fled to Jesus, who has not turned to Jesus. May your Holy Spirit draw that man, that woman, young person, whoever it is, to turn to Jesus Christ in faith, in whose name we pray. Amen.